Today's scripture is from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 13, through chapter 2, verse 3. It's on page 1014 in your pew Bible on the screen behind me. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who calls you is holy... You also be holy in your conduct, for it is written, You shall be holy, as I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Go ahead and keep your Bibles out to First Peter uh, chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2. Today, I want to talk about real community. Uh, We're taking this month together, stepping aside from our series through the Gospel of Matthew and uh, asking ourselves the question, what does it mean for us as Westgate to not just uh, approach church as something we go to, but to be the church, church as something that we are in the Lord And one of the consistent marks of the church throughout the New Testament is real community, genuine relationships with one another, to belong to each other the way that a family belongs to one another, to share life together in meaningful ways, going beyond, uh, uh, beneath the surface and beyond the posturing uh, and mask wearing that sometimes describes us, where I feel compelled to kind of you know, project to you somebody that I think you'll like, somebody that I think you'll approve of, and hide from you the things about me that I'm pretty sure you won't like or that, that you might reject me for. Um, that's not real or genuine relationships. That's fake, and, and, and we don't want that. Most of us can see right through those kinds of things. We want the kind of relationships that are secure enough to be honest about who we really are, yet 
loving enough to not necessarily leave us where we are. We want real community. And according to the Bible, that is what the church is supposed to be. That kind of genuine relationship. But sadly, it's not always what our experience of church is actually like. Uh, Most of us learn from a pretty young age that we're supposed to put on a good show when we go to church. Uh, Whether we intend to send that message to our kids or not, it's often the message that they receive. We learn from our earliest experience of church how to manage perceptions, how to look good when people are watching, and how to be yourself when they're not. Uh, That was my experience growing up in church. Um, Clear back in elementary school, I knew how uh, how to impress the teacher with my compliance, and yet then how to impress my friends with my goofiness when the teacher wasn't looking, and how to balance that juggling act. When I went through confirmation in middle school, I remember looking down on one kid who was so unruly and uncompliant that he got himself kicked out of confirmation class while I was secretly cheating on my confirmation exam. When I was in high school, I would show up for Sunday school with my parents and then sneak off with a buddy of mine and go driving around town chewing tobacco and doing other ungodly things and then show up back in time to go to worship service together with my family. My mom often listens to my sermons, and she may be discovering this for the first time when she hears that, so I'm sorry, Mom. I was pretty good at managing perceptions. And to be honest, I'm still pretty good at it. I think we all are. Uh, For some of us, it's our pride. We promote ourselves because we think of ourselves more highly and more often than we ought. For some of us, others, it's not about pride, it's about survival. Protecting ourselves, hiding our sin or our shame, because we don't feel any place for that kind of messiness here. And I can't really go there. So we we fear that others will think of us as lowly as we think of ourselves. So we hide and we perform. We wear our Sunday best, not just with our clothing, but on our faces. But there's nothing real about that kind of community, is there? It's not genuine. It feels a lot more like hypocrisy if we had to come up with a word for it. In fact, it looks a lot more like hypocrisy as well to each other and to the watching world. Whether it's the show that we put on when we go to church, having to kind of act as though we've got life together, or whether it's the massive gap that sometimes exists between how we act and what we say when we gather here or how, how we live the rest of our lives when we're scattered. In a recent survey, 85% of young people outside of the church, catch that statistics, 85% of people outside the church, young people, and 47% of young people inside the church have come to the conclusion that Christianity is hypocritical. It's one of the key uh, descriptions we assign Christianity. And yet, according to the Bible, the church is the only community where real and lasting community is actually possible. 
according to Scripture. It's the only relational context that is secure enough to be honest about who we really are, but loving enough to not necessarily leave us where we are. It's the only relational bond on earth that is strong enough to withstand death and decay and last forever. So what do we do with the disconnect between what church is supposed to be, what community is supposed to look like within the church, and what so many of us actually experience? What do we do with that gap? How do we cultivate a genuine community among us? And that's what First Peter is going to help us think about this morning. Uh, we read earlier, John read for us, one uh, thirteen through 2.3, but I want to focus specifically on 1.22 through 2.3 uh, this morning and the call to sincere family love that Peter gives us in this passage to be a real community, which is, as we're going to see, a fruit of the gospel of Jesus. So if you'll look at 1.22 with me, uh, but first let's pray together. Lord, you know the longing of our hearts. Because you made us, you shaped us, you gave us those kinds of longings to be known for who we really are. And yet, Lord, we all know that there's things about us that aren't the way they're supposed to be. And so we long not just for authenticity, but we long for restoration and wholeness. We long for repentance and holiness. And Lord, we know that according to your word, your church, your people in Christ, among whom you dwell. That's the community you've given us for that. And Lord, we confess we fall awful short. And so, Lord, as we look at your word, we want to hear your voice. We want to experience your grace. We want our hearts to be changed and filled with your spirit that we might love one another as a sincere family loves its own, that your name might be on display among us. So open our hearts as we look into your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned last week when we kind of introduced this short series in 1 Peter 1 and 2, that that the book of 1 Peter is written to a people living out their faith in the margins of society. Uh, They were chosen by God to be his special people, according to his saving work in Christ. They were a people marked by God-centered, gospel-saturated, salvation-forming, and biblically-shaped faith that we saw last week. Yet they were exiles. They were rejected by the world, a people whose lives and whose beliefs were in conflict with the dominant culture around them, not unlike our growing experience of being the church here in New England today. And so when we come to verse 13, Peter is now going to build off the foundation that he laid last uh, in the passage we saw last week, verses 1 through 12. And he's going to begin to instruct God's people on how to live in light of that salvation. How do we live in hope of this future inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading how to live in view of the grace that is going to be revealed to us when Christ returns, despite whatever opposition we might face in the meantime. What does 
it look like to follow Christ? And he calls us in these in this passage to holiness, to reverence, respect for God, to love for one another and to pure desires. But what's interesting is that of the four instructions in our in our bigger passage here, one thirteen through two three, every single one of them Peter frames in the context of family. He gives these instructions to people who belong together in family. In verse 14, he calls us to pursue holiness as obedient children. In verse 17, he calls us to reverence. Uh, he calls those to reverence who call on God as father. There's a family context for our reverence that our God is father and judge. In verse 23, he calls us to love one another because we have been born again to a new family. And in chapter 2, verse 2, he compares the longing that ought to describe us as the kind of longing that newborn infants have. Again, family imagery and language. The church is a family. We live out our faith as a family. And verses 22 through 23 help us understand more specifically what that relationship as family should look like. Namely, sincere family love. So if we look first at verses 22 to 25, the central command in those verses there is at the end of verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the instruction. Everything else flowing in and out of it is backing up and explaining why we should do that. But that's the key instruction. And that's the first thing I want to talk about this morning. What does that mean? What does it mean to have sincere family love for one another. But second, Peter does say some things leading into that, and then he says some things coming out of that that help us understand how that kind of family love is possible. And so that's the second thing we'll look at this morning, is, is how is a sincere family love, like what Peter's calling to us, calling us to, even possible? And then third, We'll look at two, one through three, which tell us how to cultivate that kind of family love. How do we how do we nurture it within the body of Christ? So first, what kind of love does God call us to within the church? What kind of love should mark our experience of real community? Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. If you look at that verse there, Peter describes the love he calls us to in three different ways, all of which are basically saying the same thing, that our love must be genuine. It must be real. It is to be sincere, earnest from a pure heart. The real thing. Or to translate the word for sincere here a little bit more rigidly, it is to be unhypocritical. That's the word there. Unhypocritical. Our love for one another should be without hypocrisy. And so that that thing that describes so much of our actual experience within the body of Christ, that's the opposite of what our love is called to be. So what does the Bible mean by unhypocritical love? Well, first, an unhypocritical love is not forced or faked. It's neither forced nor faked. 
And we all know what a forced love looks like. You know, so when Joshua and Mariah or, or take any number of kids and put your own kids in, in that scenario, when they're fighting and you, you know, stop the fight and you disarm them for whatever toy is in dispute and you make them say, I'm sorry, you know, that's forced love right there. You know, say you're sorry. Sorry. You know, try it again. Sorry. You know, it just, that's forced love. Um, or the difference between, think of the difference between being invited by a friend to go with them and see their favorite team play versus being an actual fan of that team. You know, if the Patriots game is just something you go to, then you cheer for the team because that's what you're supposed to do when you're there. And then you leave and you turn it off. Not unlike what love looks like if church is just something we go to uh, and then go home and turn off. But if you're a real Patriots fan, it's not just what you go to, it's who you are. You know, you... Your affection for the team is not surface only. It's painted on your face because it's bleeding out of your heart. You know, you find ways to work it into every conversation. Uh, it's not just a Monday night thing. It's a lifestyle. You are a Patriots fan. At least you should be this afternoon. And, and so a sincere love is not forced or fake. It's not painted on. It's not manipulated it's loving each other, not because you're supposed to, but because you actually do love each other. That's an unhypocritical love. Second, unhypocritical love is not self-serving, it's self-giving. It's not self-serving, it's self-giving. Hypocritical love, uh, it's all about what I get out of the relationship. It's pretending to care or, or caring in a superficial way, not because of the good that I can give, but because of the good I stand to get. And so in the name of love, we end up essentially using people to fulfill our own desires. And if people get in the way of that, then we forsake love and we turn to what chapter 2 verse 1 warns us against. We turn to malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander because we're at the center of that relationship. That's a hypocritical love. An unhypocritical love, on the other hand, it doesn't serve self, it gives of self. It places the good of the other above the good of myself. And it often comes at the expense of self. It's sacrificial. And that's, that's probably the hardest part for me. Um, it's a daily battle. And Carissa and I are, are laying in bed and we hear one of the children start to cry. It's like a an old western standoff. You just nobody moves because <laughs> if you twitch, then you the other person knows you heard it, and you have to get up and go get them. But but if you just hold still, you know you laugh because you do it. And and my flesh says just lay there long enough. She'll get up. She'll get her. But the spirit says. Get your lazy, selfish bottom out of bed and go love your wife. Sincere love is sacrificial love. It's a love 
that does not seek what's best for me, but what's best for the person that I love. It's a love that follows the pattern of Christ. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. That's the definition. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for our family. So unhypocritical love is not forced or fake. It, faked. It's not self-serving. Third, it is God-oriented. And unhypocritical love is God-oriented, which helps us know what it means to actually seek the good of the other person. There's a lot of ways you can define good. God-oriented love sees that their good is to know, love, and enjoy God. And that's what our love helps them to do because there's nothing better for them than that. Sincere love is not an anything-goes kind of love or a whatever-will-make-you-happy kind of love. Sometimes we think that unless we affirm everything about somebody that we're somehow being unloving. We're not supposed to... uh, get in the way of them asserting their individuality. But if something's not good for that person, it's not not actually loving to encourage it or or to to not come alongside to kind of help them see that or or to guard or protect them. And when Chloe climbs onto our open dishwasher as she attempts every day and tries to play with the steak knives, I will stifle the assertion of her individuality to the end of the day in order to protect her. And it would be unloving not to do that because that's not good for her. And so a sincere love looks out for the good of the other. And good is defined by what is God-oriented, what's going to help them align their lives, what's going to protect them according to God's standards. Real love is God-oriented. It accords to God's word. It recognizes what Peter says in the, in the two paragraphs just before our passage that we are called to holiness because we serve a holy God. We're called to reverence because our Father is also our judge. So real love is God-oriented, unhypocritical love. Finally, it's also unconditional. Unhypocritical love is unconditional. It's not based on our performance, holding up the hoop, seeing how high we can jump. It's based on grace. It's based on grace. It's not a if you do this, then we'll love and accept you. It's rather because Jesus is enough, we have love and grace to accept you. Which gives us freedom to throw away the mask and be honest about who we really are. It's not a performance for one another. Not if Christ is our Lord. Frees us to be honest about all our insecurities, all our insufficiencies, all our failures, the things that we don't want each other to know about us. Because our acceptance isn't based on works, but on our union with Christ. And because in Christ we have everything we need to deal with that sin or to deal with that insecurity, we are free to love one another unhypocritically, without condition, by grace. God calls his people to a sincere family love, an unhypocritical love, which is neither forced nor faked. It's not self-giving. Excuse me, it's not self-serving. It's self-giving. 
It's God-oriented and it's grace-driven. Which is a tall order for sinful people like us. It's tall and terrifying because it implies a certain level of vulnerability among one another. So what makes that kind of love possible for God's people? Only the gospel of Jesus. Sincere family love, unhypocritical love, is a fruit of the good news of Jesus Christ at work within his people. And that's the basis. Peter makes that basis, that point, in two ways. The words that are leading into the command and the words that flow out of it. First, he tells us that unhypocritical love is possible because the gospel is actually designed to produce that kind of love among God's people. It's meant to produce that. It's according to design. When the seed of the gospel is planted in the life of his people, we should expect love to be one of the fruits that it bears. If you plant an apple seed, you get an apple tree. You don't get an olive tree. And so we should expect to see genuine love where the gospel has been planted and is at work. And we see that in the words leading into Peter's command in verse 22 again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. Now, there are three parts leading into uh, three parts of this phrase that are leading into his command here. First, they have purified their souls, which is kind of a funny phrase if you stop and think about it. They've Having purified your souls, isn't God the one who purifies us? How do you purify yourself if, if our relationship with God's based on grace? But the word that Peter uses here for purify is a word elsewhere that refers to a type of ceremonial preparation for worship. So the kind of thing ancient Israel would do when they went to temple, they would purify themselves, they would wash or or do different things in order to prepare themselves for worship in the temple. But here, it's not the outward washing that prepares us to know and follow God. Instead, it's the inward obedience to the truth. That's the second part of the phrase, having purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, namely the truth of the gospel, the good news that Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves by living a perfect life in our place and by giving his life for us on the cross. What prepares us to know and worship God is trusting Jesus, submitting ourselves to the gospel, to the truth of the gospel. But notice the reason that we have prepared our lives by our obedience to the truth. Notice what the gospel is designed to do in the third part of this phrase. We've purified ourselves by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. That's the anticipated fruit that comes from trusting Christ. It is part of the design of the gospel that it would bear fruit of love in our lives. It's one of the reasons we have been saved is that we might love one another unhypocritically as family. Now, our tendency when we even just speak of salvation, let alone how we live our lives, is to ignore that part of the design. We often make salvation in Christ a very individual, uh, private thing. Where are you at with God? And I'm not going to kind of mess 
uh, you know, get in there. That's between you and him. And, and we we miss this horizontal dimension of knowing Christ. That we have we're not just saved to relationship with God. We're saved into His family, which is also a horizontal reality. Now, uh, trusting Christ is a very personal and individual thing. Every single person is called before God to turn away from their sin and turn to Christ in order to be saved. And if that's not something you have done, if you do not know Jesus personally, if you're still depending on your own works or trying to put your life back together out of your own strength as though that's going to make you right with God, one, it's not because your sin has to be dealt with and only Jesus' blood pays for that. If you haven't done that, I want to encourage you and implore you to turn to Christ and to be saved. It's a very personal thing, salvation. But it's also a very corporate thing. When we're saved, we become part of God's family. As Tim Chester and Steve Timmis, a couple of church planters in England, uh, write, the church then is not something additional or optional. It is at the very heart of God's purposes. Jesus came to create a people who would model what it means to live under his rule. It would be a glorious outpost of the kingdom of God, an embassy of heaven. This is where the world can see what it means to be truly human. That was God's vision. Not just to save individuals to himself, but to save a people, a family, through whom he would display his glory to the world. The gospel's designed to produce real family Love. We should expect to see that among the fruit. That's one of the reasons it's possible to do that. It's because it's according to design. The second reason Peter gives about how the gospel makes real love possible is that our new birth in Christ creates a bond that is greater and more lasting than anything else in this world. And we see that in the words that flow out of his command. In verses 23 to 25. So look at those verses with me. Love one another earnestly, he tells us, since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Sincere love is possible because our new birth in Christ creates a bond that is stronger and longer lasting than any other bond under heaven. We've all heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water. So the idea that that family relationships will trump or, or uh, take priority over friendships and acquaintances. Here, the blood of Christ is thicker than family blood. Our bond in our human families is formed by perishable seed, human procreation. And as strong and as powerful and as beautiful As the human family bond is, at the end of the day, like all flesh, it is but grass. And like, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. 
The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. So our new birth is not of perishable seed. It's of imperishable. Our new birth comes from the living and abiding, the lasting word of God, the word that is the gospel that was preached to us. That's the bond we have in the body of Christ. It's something that doesn't fade or wear out, that isn't canceled by death and decay, but that lasts to eternity. It's the only relational bond on earth strong enough to withstand death. And to the extent that we take that bond seriously, to the extent that we stop and recognize that that we have a bond greater than any other bond under heaven, it will produce sincere family love among us. And think about it this way. If you belong to Jesus, then you belong to one another. And you're going to be spending eternity together. So it's a good idea to learn how to love one another genuinely now, isn't it? That's kind of the point Peter's making here. We have a bond deeper and longer lasting than any other. And that bond, if we take it seriously, should produce real love among us. Pastor and author Jared Wilson has said, The gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ frees us from hypocrisy. The gospel frees us from hypocrisy. It frees us to boldly own our inadequacies, our flaws, our failures, and especially our sins. It enables us to be okay with owning our non-okayness. That's what the gospel does when it's at work in our hearts. How freeing is it to think? Um, Imagine walking into church or into each other's homes, sitting down over coffee, and when somebody asks you, how are you doing? You don't have to put on a smile and say, fine. Just imagine the freedom to not have to robotically answer the way we're conditioned to answer because we don't trust our relationships to be genuine enough. Imagine the freedom that comes from owning our non-okayness. Now, maybe some of you are fine right now. Praise God for that. Most of us, we're not. We're not. But we have a Savior who is. We have a Savior who is adequate in every way that we are inadequate. We have a Savior who is secure in every way that we are insecure who offers wholeness for our brokenness and forgiveness for our sins. We have a Savior who who loves us despite our unloveliness and who loves us too much to let us stay in our unloveliness, who wants to change us. We have a Savior who teaches us to love each other that way. That's the bond that comes From the gospel of Christ. The gospel supplies the only relational context that is secure enough for us to be honest with who we really are and yet loving enough to not necessarily leave each other where we are. It supplies the grace that frees us to speak into each other's lives without fear of rejection. That's a huge fear that so many of us, if I really speak 
what I'm kind of seeing here or ask or, or kind of dig and inquire, I'm afraid of rejection. And if you start probing in my life, I'm tempted to reject you for it. The gospel frees us from that fear because our sin has been covered in Christ. We can deal with it. More than that, it not only frees us to speak into each other's lives, it creates an expectation that we will be speaking into each other's lives and receiving that same speech from others. That we're not satisfied to stay where we are in our sin and brokenness. It drives us to walk side by side in our pursuit of Christ. If we have tasted that God is good, if we've really tasted that our Lord is good, then we can't help but long for more of him and do what it takes to get there. And that's the last point I want us to consider this morning, the fuel for sincere family love. A pure, spirit, a pure spiritual nourishment in Christ, chapter 2, 1 through 3. So chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. How do we cultivate sincere family love among us? How do you cultivate anything? You have to feed it with the right stuff. You have to feed it with the right stuff. One of the reasons that that we don't always see the genuine love that the gospel is designed to produce is because we nurse our community on fluff. We nurse our community on maybe maybe nice principles or or, or things that teach well, but that are void of any life-changing gospel truth. That's one of the reasons that that Christian community is so thin, is we don't nurture it with the gospel. Or, even worse, we nurse it with poison. We nurse it with malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Which in verse 1 here, it's not just a list of any old sins. That's a list of sins that happen in community. All of these sins require somebody to do them to. It's like putting Drano in a baby bottle and giving it to your child. It will kill them from the inside out. That's what happens to the body of Christ when we nurse it on these kinds of things. Peter calls us to long for pure spiritual milk. The kind of nourishment that's appropriate to our new birth in Christ. Now, a lot of folks will debate about what exactly Peter's referring to with the metaphor of milk here. Is it the word of God? Uh, Some translations even supply that word here. Uh, Personally, I think it's a little bit more general than that. I think Peter's talking about the kind of nourishment that's appropriate for those who've been born in Christ, which certainly centers on the word of God, but I think it involves all the means of grace that God has given us by which we might grow up into our salvation. So our fellowship together, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the ministry of the word and prayer, everything that helps us genuinely grow in Jesus, that's what we're supposed to long for, to help us taste and see that the Lord is really good. So 
So in other words, the way that we can that we cultivate a sincere family love among us is to feed ourselves on Christ. It's to feed ourselves and to feed each other on Christ. To open God's word together, to pray together, to speak the gospel of Jesus into each other's lives. And to do it often as a family. As a family. And so I want to think about two applications for us this morning as Westgate, as we pursue real community together. First, we need to take the gospel seriously. We need to take the gospel of Jesus seriously. Do we really believe, as Tim Keller has put it, that we are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared believe, yet we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope at the same time? Do we really believe that that's true of us? And do we really believe that's true of one another? Are we willing to take the gospel seriously and risk letting things become a little bit messy here in terms of being honest with who we really are and what's really going on in our lives? If we don't take the gospel seriously, real community will never happen. It's impossible. It's impossible. And so we need to learn to speak the gospel of Jesus into each other, into each other's lives, into each other's hearts. Not just to say what we think the other person wants us to say, not just to dive in and rescue them, but to point them to their Savior. Not to be their Savior, but to help them see and depend on their Savior, Jesus to remind each other daily that his grace really is sufficient. It really is enough. You don't have to add to Christ's work on the cross. You just have to embrace it. To be in God's word together and to bring that word to bear on our lives, to lift each other up in God-oriented prayer. Prayer that takes seriously the truth and power of the gospel. That's the first thing that we need to do is take the gospel seriously as a people. That's what makes real community possible. But second, we need to take our identity as family seriously as well. One of the reasons that we don't always experience real community in the church is because we've slipped into the mindset that church is something you go to, not who you are. Chester and Timis write again, We have a loose connection with Christians on a Sunday, but then we largely go back to living our everyday lives on our own. No wonder we struggle to thrive. Our faith is animated on Sunday morning as we sing God's praises and hear his word, but it limps along during the week when we live apart from the body of Christ. Here's one of the biggest difficulties, yet starkest realities when it comes to real community. Real community doesn't happen two hours a week on a Sunday morning. It just doesn't. Life as a family is meant to be bigger and deeper than that. And that's hard. That's hard because we're a busy people. Every single one of us is is busy. The last thing we need are more meetings and more programs. I will amen that. And not only are we busy, uh, we don't live very close to each other 
at Westgate Church. Uh, that's one of our the unique challenges we face is that we're pretty spread out. Let me frame it to you like this. Among the hundred, roughly 100 households that are Westgate Church, we live in 26 different towns. You can do the math on that. You know? we, we don't live very close to each other. If you put it on a map and you take the widest North and south, it's a 40-mile spread east to west, and it's a 30-mile spread north to south. That's hard. That makes it challenging to actually share life together outside of Sunday morning. And so we, as a church body, have to ask a question, does that mean we just have to give up on this community thing and just write it off as unrealistic? Or does it mean we have to think creatively and pray fervently for God to guide us on how to do this together. How to share life in meaningful ways. I think it has to mean that if we're going to take seriously our identity as family. Now, there are several ways that people among this body connect regularly. And if you're not aware of those, you should be. Uh, the, the ministry guide that Adam mentioned earlier is one of the best ways to, to find out what's going on at the website. There are people who gather Thursday mornings at, at, at Bruce and Karen Daggett's to pray every week. There are people who gather here, ladies who gather here on Thursday mornings to open the word and pray, men who do the same thing Friday mornings. There's half a dozen uh, small groups that meet in different towns. Uh, we call them home fellowships. Uh, so there are some opportunities already to connect uh, but we're exploring more ideas because we want to take seriously our identity as family. Uh, we're exploring especially ways that we can connect that aren't dependent on getting people to a building that, that may have to drive so far, but that can help people connect where they're living and working already and, and that can do so in a way that doesn't add a ton to our schedule, but that makes the most of what we're already doing by doing it together whether it's celebrating life, whether it's sharing meals, whatever it is. Uh, it's one of the reasons we're launching what we're calling the Community Group Initiative this year, which is basically uh, you know, looking to create avenues to live and share life together on mission in smaller groups as a, as a body. And if that's something you're interested in, right now basically what, what we'll be looking, and I'll talk more about it in the weeks ahead, but I'm looking for people who are willing and interested to be trained to start some of these new groups because we want to take seriously the gospel and we want to take seriously our identity as a family and our call to live on mission together. So we'll talk more about that another time. But the gospel of Jesus makes us family. It makes us family. And taken seriously, it bears the fruit among us of sincere family love. The kind of love where we're secure enough to be honest about who we really are, yet loving enough to not necessarily leave each other where we really are. May God be pleased to deepen that bond here. That's our prayer. May he be pleased to bear fruit through the work of Christ by his spirit in our lives. That we would love each other earnestly from a pure heart. Let's pray together. Lord, that's our, our cry and our request. May we 
take Christ so seriously that we would love each other earnestly from a pure heart. Lord, thank you that what is impossible for us is made possible through the gospel of your grace. So would you remind us of your love and would you change our hearts to love, to love you, to love each other. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.